I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week are feminist restaurants. Food has a remarkable ability to bring people together. It is a way in which we share our culture, share our identities, and welcome people into our homes. Food is a universal need, and because of that, it becomes a shared human experience, both at home in the private sphere, but also out in public as people love going to restaurants, love going to cafes, love going to coffee houses. And those individual businesses can become so much more than places where you get something to eat. I'm sure if you think of your favorite restaurant, whether as a kid or now, somewhere you go where you're a regular, where you get to know the people who are making the food, whether it's the kitchen staff or the servers or whoever it is, you build a sense of community. And restaurants, while they serve a very practical purpose, their meaning, their significance goes well beyond the meals that they serve. And a great example of that comes from Alex Ketchum's new book, Ingredients for Revolution, a history of American feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses. And in the book, Alex looks at more than 230 feminist and lesbian feminist restaurants in the United States between 1972 and today. And through her analysis, she explores questions of finance, labor, pay, where the food's coming from, to demonstrate how restaurants reconciled feminist beliefs with capitalism and how they pushed and worked and challenged society for more equitable and sustainable business practices. And within that environment, they created safe and welcoming spaces for lesbian women, and in a lot of cases, the broader LGBTQ2 plus community. It really is a wonderful exploration of these ideas, of these concepts, and it speaks to the ideas of how business can drive broader societal change, how important building community is, and of course, the significance of food in community building as well. Just a wonderful analysis that touches on so much that is important when we talk about the reasons people gather, the transmission of knowledge, the building of community, and the sharing of culture. Just very much enjoyed the book and the discussion with Alec. And as we get to towards the end of the discussion, given the current reality here in North America and some of the policies and legislation that is being put forward, these spaces continue to be very, very important. So with that, let's get right into my chat with Alex Ketchum. All right. And Alex Ketchum joins me now. Alex, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to join me to talk about Ingredients for Revolution. As I said in the intro, when I came across this book, I was very uh, excited to delve into it, to talk about it, because most people like food. People enjoy food, eating, like coming together, the sense of community. But also what struck me is that a lot of restaurants, places where they serve food are sites of a lot of different dynamics uh, that are going on. Uh, so really excited to, to delve into that. But just to start us off, to give us a, a base point for it, 
the subtitle is a history of American feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses. So how do you define or determine what is a feminist restaurant, cafe, or coffee house? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. I have to say that definitions were an ongoing challenge with this project. So I worked on this project for 12 years, and I think the first few years of the project were consumed by these definitional questions. Because the first thing is, what is feminist, right? There's lots of different types of feminism. There's liberal feminism, socialist feminism, Marxist feminist, eco-feminist, etc. And then also, what is a restaurant? What is a cafe? What is a coffee house? You know, sometimes coffee shops will call themselves coffee houses. Sometimes they'll call themselves cafes. Cafes have different connotations in different geographic contexts, different national contexts. Is something a restaurant, if it's a bar that serves food, or is it like all of these kinds of questions, because I didn't necessarily want to be a project about bars, because there's a lot of important work already done on lesbian bars and kind of these feminist and women folk or women-focused community spaces. I wanted it to be more about food, so it posed a lot of problems, challenges, and questions. What I ended up choosing to do was that I used the own terms of the restaurants themselves. So if a restaurant called itself feminist, then I accepted that, and I tried to ask myself, well, what does this mean? So if it used the word feminist in either its title, such as Bloodroot Feminist Vegetarian Restaurant and Bookstore in Bridgeport, Connecticut, that's the name of the restaurant, I used that as a definition, or if it used feminist in its marketing or publications, that counted. And so then the project became less about what I was saying prescriptively was a feminist restaurant, but instead, what did restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses, founders, mean when they use the word feminist to describe their businesses and spaces. And how much does what is served matter? Because I was struck when you said you didn't want to do bars. And one of the things that obviously is served at bars is alcohol that would (laughs) be in necessarily in, in certain cafes, coffee houses, restaurants. How much is that dynamic of literally being served coffee versus alcohol, pastries versus like deep fried foods or whatever, like, you know, typical bar food. Like, Does that actually play into any of the dynamics that you're looking into? Definitely. Some of the feminist restaurants started as an alternative to kind of lesbian bar culture. So within the feminist restaurant spaces, many of them were founded by lesbians or uh, today, people who might identify as queer, but oftentimes queer women, different, definitely during the period from 1972 to 1989. So some of them wanted to have an alternative space to going to a bar. It wasn't necessarily disparaging of bar spaces, but people thought we need another space for our community that isn't just a bar that isn't focused on alcohol. There's some issues of alcoholism within the community. There's people who don't drink due to different religious, cultural, health reasons. And this also limits who's able to enter the space as well because it's not an all-ages space. And so some of them decided to be restaurants that didn't have any alcohol. Some had were restaurants that were kind of BYOB. And some of them uh, did serve alcohol. So there's a variety between the spaces. But depending on their geographic context, they had different kinds of liquor licenses. Some had club status. But... The emphasis of these spaces wasn't around drinking, but many of them were still event spaces. So they would still have community events, poetry readings, political discussions, art shows, and stuff like that. 
Um, but food itself was something that oftentimes helped the restaurant, cafe, or coffee house define its feminism. So while this isn't the case with every single restaurant that I looked at, many of them saw what they served as feminist food. And does the time of day play into that too? Because bars typically you associate with them at night. Certainly you can go to lunch and have have lunch at a bar, but yeah. generally a coffee house cafe can range from going to work in the morning, you get a cup of coffee to, as you say, event space at night, live music, whatever it is, like it, it can run the gamut. Does that play into that element as well? Definitely. So part of it is that, okay, even if you still want to go to the lesbian bar at night, you can have dinner at the restaurant or you can have lunch or some of them were really specifically breakfast and kind of brunch places. So that's the case with Ruby's in the Minneapolis area, as well as the Brick Hut Cafe in the Bay Area of California. So those places were really focused on kind of breakfast foods. Uh, some of the spaces that were focused on breakfast foods would name their omelets after famous or important female figures or feminist figures too, in order to kind of have that tie in with the space. So yeah, it allowed for different kinds of socializing. And while bar space is really important, not everyone likes to be out at night. You know, some people are more morning people. Some people just want something a bit more chill over a cup of coffee. They don't necessarily want a dance scene or a loud crowded bar at night. So how did you go about finding these places? Uh, I imagine that since it's 1972 to the present, you have a lot of people who you could talk to, uh, a lot of uh, founders, cooks, servers, managers, everybody who run the gamut uh, who work in these locations, but how did you go about finding them? Yeah, this was a methodological challenge because there was no ever directory or list of these spaces per se. I began the project at first with visiting Bloodroot. I went there when I was an undergrad and that's what got me excited about this topic. And I talked about a bit for my undergrad thesis and I contacted the Schlesinger Library of the Radcliffe Institute of Harvard University to look at their special collections and spoke to archivists about like, what do you have on restaurants? And I also talked to the folks at the Sally Bingham Archives of Duke University. So that was when I was an undergrad, third year of undergrad, just kind of testing out the waters with archival research. And so during that process, not only was I made aware of the Patricia Hines fund, and she had started Bread and Roses, a feminist restaurant in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But I also started to think about, with the assistance of the archivists of like bringing this as a suggestion, to look through feminist periodicals and lesbian periodicals through the advertisement sections and through the articles to see what was being talked about. This led to a process from basically 2011 to around 2016, 2017, I'd say 2016, um, when I was pretty much done collecting most of my research, where I contacted every feminist and uh, LGBTQ archive in the United States and Canada, or at least as many as I could find at that time, um, to ask them what they had on restaurants, because things weren't necessarily categorized as feminist restaurants. What happened also was that archivist said, we don't have anything in our collections, but I used to go to one, or my friend used to run one. So there was a bit of kind of snowballing snowballing through that, as well as in interviews I conducted, people would point me to other folks. I also went through uh, women's travel guides, which were essentially lesbian travel guides, but they're called women's travel guides, such as Gaia's Guide or Gaia's Guide, and looked through these directories, uh, different places to visit. 
I went through the ephemera collections of a lot of different LGBTQ and feminist archives, so about 19 of them, and found event flyers, business cards, and stuff like that. Um, And then I also, as I was finding these spaces, I created an online directory, a website called thefeministrestaurantproject.com, which still exists today. And I posted the places that I had found, and I circulated this URL and asked people to contact me if they found any others. I still update that online directory because people still find out about the project and let me know about other spaces. I also looked at different kind of Facebook groups centered on lesbians who were involved in feminist communities that were around their like 60s to 80s, like their age, and also circulated the list and asked for other suggestions. So it was a mixed methods approach. And with it, then I was able to kind of create this quantitative aspect of the project too, and some mapping for the project. And then I could dive into case studies of places that there were more archival materials about or that I could interview individuals about so that I could represent a lot of different geographic regions as well. And so as you're going through that process, one thing that I would wonder about is, is there an urban-rural divide in some of the the material that you're finding? Because oftentimes the places that you're studying, feminist restaurants, certainly LGBTQ plus safe spaces, I think for most people, we would associate them with larger urban centers and where rural locations, again, if I'm stereotyping, less safe for some of these types of businesses. Did you find any trends in that regard, whether urban, rural or north, south, east, west, anything like that, that that where these businesses were able to not only be set up, but thrive and be successful? Was there any trends geographically? Yeah, I think when I began this project in 2011, a lot of the historiography really centered on basically the coastal experiences of queer people, really looking at kind of New York, Boston, San Francisco, sometimes LA. And while there's been more books that have come out since I started the project that have kind of looked at other areas, um, what my project shows is that these weren't the only centers of queer women's life, especially kind of lesbian and queer feminist organizing. Where I found feminist restaurants, of course, they tended to be in some areas with larger um, populations because you need a large enough population to support the restaurant, right? Right. Uh, Especially because you have to have a lease or own the space. So you need a large enough ongoing clientele. But by looking at the coffee houses, which were temporary, they could be pop-ups, they could change location, they didn't require a lease necessarily. Uh, That allowed me to actually look at more rural locations, sometimes small towns. There was one uh, feminist coffee house that took place in a cookie shop overnight when it was closed. And there were ones that existed in just community centers or in church basements. And so that allowed me to kind of shift the narrative. There's been some interesting scholarship also that's been coming out that I think that shows that when we look at just these urban centers, we miss a lot of the kind of uh, activism and community building that rural lesbians were doing. And so some interesting projects are looking at different uh, lesbian periodicals in order to kind of find these rural queer uh, women and communities. So um, while I did find more kind of established restaurants within larger and mid-sized 
cities or in university towns. That was kind of another place that I found a lot. So it didn't necessarily need to be a big city, but there's like a large enough population of like students coming in and professors and staff members to support it. Uh, it does kind of shift this narrative a bit. I found feminist restaurants, cafes, or coffee houses in pretty much every state and or province at one point in time. Uh, there's a couple exceptions, but overall uh, there was pretty broad representation. Yeah. And that speaks to the idea that uh, you know, LGBTQ plus people are everywhere and it's, yeah. it's right not concentrated, as you say, to coastal cities. And we've on the show before, we've talked about uh, sports leagues, in particular lesbian mm-hmm. sports leagues as a place for community. And I, I think I have a similar question as it relates to food, because people can gather for any reason, like mm-hmm. they can just get together and be together, build a community. But what is it about food in particular that makes it, I guess, coffee too, but we'll, like, I don't drink coffee. I focus on the food side. If I go to a coffee house, it's for the pastry. So, uh, but food, like uh, consuming, gathering together at a table, consuming whatever it is. Why is that such a powerful space or, or create such a sense of community? Like what, what is it about food that does that? There's a few reasons. One is that we all need to eat. It can provide comfort. It can be a way to share culture. Uh, For some of the people who started feminist restaurants, it was a skill set that they already had in many different families and subcultures within the U.S. and Canada. It's still really common for women and girls to be socialized to learn how to cook. And so it's a skill set that people can use to establish a business or to build community around. There's also the sense that food creates a way for people to linger. So I look also at feminist bookstores that sold coffee as well, or kind of pastry or snacks, because it was this way for to tell people, hey, you can sit in here and hang out for a while. You can sit around and talk. It's not so much a quick exchange, but it invites people in to stay for longer. The other things with food is that it can be so political. So food is a way for people to reflect their political values in terms of where they're getting the raw ingredients. Are they supporting the farmers properly? Are they supporting the people who are cooking the food properly? Are they making sure that prices are accessible for people who want to come to the space or they're sliding scales, things like that? So it's not surprising to me that food is a, a politically charged topic and that feminist restaurants and cafes and coffee houses use food as a way to kind of reflect these politics as well. And there's a lot of important work kind of about the history of cafes and the history of food, kind of more broadly, anarchist food spaces, early modern cafes, right? All this way that the food becomes the site of gathering. Yeah. So a couple of things off that with food, as you say, food being a political thing. And uh, one of the things about restaurants that I, I think is historically true and certainly true today that Wages have, have often been mm-hmm. a, a site of contention, uh, and certainly individuals who work in the restaurant inju- industry are underpaid and mm-hmm. rely on uh, gratuities, and even that can be problematic for a lot of reasons. So how do we balance that? Like, Did that come up a lot in terms of wages within these sites? Yeah, for sure. So pay was always a place of contention. And looking through the records when they existed or in discussions, that ends up being the place where there's sometimes infighting can lead to the end of some of these spaces and so forth. Many of the places, especially in the 70s and early 80s, began as collectives. 
And many of them had the hope that they could support basically a living wage for the people who work there, support farmers equitably, have local ingredients, cook seasonally, and make sure that people who wanted to come could afford the food. But when you're looking at lesbians and women during this time period, right, many of them have very little disposable income. So, you know, in terms of like how you can price things at the restaurant, that's going to pose some challenges. Uh, If you're trying to pay the farmers and the people who are producing the ingredients fairly, that's going to lead to higher costs. And then you're trying to make sure that people have living wages. That's a really hard triangle to balance, right? And what oftentimes would happen is that in creating these restaurants, many of them had very little startup capital. They could be started with funds from uh, community members, or they would host dances or other kinds of events for funding. They might put in their own savings. But all of this meant that they didn't really have a lot of leeway in terms of how much, if they had a bad week, that could put them into huge trouble. So all of this meant that you have people working really hard and in order to make sure customers can afford the items and the farmers are paid properly, they're oftentimes cutting their own wages. Mm. And so that could lead to burnout, infighting, exhaustion, and underpay. And most of them want to get rid of tipping because they saw it, it as one of the many challenges with restaurant hierarchy. They didn't like the dynamics of tipping. Um, so sometimes instead of a tip can, they would have things like a jar where you would donate to local feminist organizations such as softball teams or uh, the Women's Center, stuff like that. So uh, that was always a challenge. Uh, I think as the kind of feminist restaurants that exist today, one of them being Lugusta Yearwood's businesses, she's a feminist vegan anarchist chocolate maker who runs a chocolate shop and a cafe and other businesses. And she really draws attention to all of the challenges of trying to run a feminist business in a capitalist society, right? You're trying to make sure that your workers have health care. You're trying to work within a system that was designed to be exploitative and trying to run it in a non-exploitative way. That's a huge challenge um, and really, really difficult to balance. And for some of the original restaurants that I looked at, the ones in the 70s and early 80s, some of them were founded by people who had never run a business before. Prior to 1974 in the U.S., you couldn't even And prior to the passage of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act in 1974, women couldn't get credit cards in their own name. They couldn't get lines of credit without their husband or father. So you're having all of these kind of systematic issues on top of and structural issues that make it really difficult. So, yeah, pay was a huge challenge. And so even though today we're seeing a lot of discussions kind of in mainstream restaurants around exploitation of workers. Uh, these conversations have been had from feminist restaurant workers since the 1970s. Yeah, that, that business side of it is really interesting, right? Because they are operating within a broader market for labor within the, the restaurant industry. And as you say, some of the systemic things that are in their way of, of access to credit, access to startup funding, that mm-hmm. creates a reality that for as much as you might be a good business person if you're not given the same opportunity as the person next door, you can't really compete necessarily. Yeah, definitely. And even after the passage of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act or in Canada with certain uh, human rights legislation, it didn't mean that banks followed the law. It didn't mean that they necessarily still (laughs) gave credit to women, right? Especially women of color who are lesbians and women, right? Like that created other kinds of divides and who was able to start these spaces, right? Because they're facing 
uh, heterosexism, sexism, and racism. Yeah, so the the race element is is interesting to get into as well because oftentimes LGBTQ plus activism is again generally associated with a, a white activism, and uh, minorities are not always included in the story or the way the stories are told. Like, say, if you look at all the the popular films, the big films about the LGBTQ plus community tend to be uh, white characters portrayed in that. So how does race play a role in these spaces and creating the spaces, uh, particularly, you know, what immediately comes to mind, I think, is in the South, but certainly the racial dynamic exists all over the country. Yeah, I mean, in terms of kind of within any marginalized and oppressed group, the people within that group that still have the most privilege are oftentimes the ones that get the most representation, right? Because even if you're facing heterosexism and sexism, you still have racial privilege, right? So that's going to allow for different opportunities. And we see that reflected in the media and kind of portrayals of these histories. Within the feminist restaurants themselves, so most of the restaurants, the kind of permanent spaces where they had a lease or they owned the building, those tended to be founded primarily by white, oftentimes Jewish, lesbians who were feminists and either came from working class or middle class backgrounds. And quite a few of them had kind of uh, college degrees or some kind of additional um, educational training, but not necessarily in business. Um, in terms of the coffee houses, there's a lot more diversity in terms of representation. So we can think of Las Hermanas in San Diego, for example, run by uh, Chicana and Latina women. Because coffee houses didn't require this lease, the same kind of overhead, it allowed for a lot more kind of opportunities within the spaces themselves. So not just thinking about the founders of the spaces, but for people who work there, there's where you find a bit more diversity. Um, so for example, some of the spaces such as Bloodroot have hired a large variety of people from different uh, cultural and ethnic backgrounds who actually bring food from their own cultures into the menu. So people who are expertise on different kinds of dishes lead the creation of those dishes on the ever-rotating seasonal menu. In the book, I talk about some of the debates around race within the coffeehouse space in particular. So uh, I was able to benefit from these tape-recorded meetings held by a women's coffee house in the Twin Cities area. So basically sometimes what would happen were different uh, feminist community organizations would just start a tape recording and put the recorder in the middle of the room. So it's not the best audio quality, but it's pretty amazing to just kind of hear the dynamics of the group, the debates, and so forth. Um, So I was lucky to listen to that both from the Twin Cities and also from the Boston area. Super cool um, finds in the archives. So uh, within this, you can hear the different participants talking about racism within the space, how it could be more inclusive, what they meant by being a woman's coffee house, did it mean lesbian, was it open to all women, how is all women defined, are we thinking racially diverse, what about age, what about disability, and all these different dynamics. So one thing with that coffee house is that they didn't just talk about these issues. They then instigated a multiple point plan of committing a certain amount of their programming to centering women of color, to changing different dynamics within the space, to changing who was hired on the different kinds of committees, how people would be paid so it could be more inclusive, less exclusionary. So 
This isn't to say that these spaces were perfect. They definitely dealt with racism, but these discussions around race were happening in the 70s, 80s, and onward. What strikes me about that too is if you look at the civil rights movement, restaurants, diners, cafes were significant sites of protest Mm -hmm. during the 50s, 60s, 70s, and onward. So does that play in at all that restaurants, perhaps because of, as you were talking about earlier, the cultural significance and power of food have been used as sites of protest and advocacy, does that lend itself to the power and significance of the restaurants that you're looking at as well? I think it's some part. I think because people eat, it's a very common form of business. It speaks to who's sitting with whom, what kind of ideas are being exchanged, who's allowed to sit next to whom and why. So I think in that sense, yes. I think also looking to Bloodroot, like Selma Miriam really wanted to have a community center and she knew how to cook And she also wanted there to be books involved, right? So this is why she made it a restaurant. But I don't think it's surprising that this idea of what we hunger for, both intellectually, politically, and physically, are intertwined. Okay. So I want to ask about the question of of privacy uh, within this. And and this is within the context, certainly, uh, with you know, I was reading today about what's going on in New Brunswick and uh, the the change to the, I don't know if it's law or policy, whatever it is, uh, that the premier did out there that's caused some consternation, I think rightly some consternation. Certainly we've seen it across the United States as well with certain acts of legislation. And when we're talking about creating safe space and, and particularly for youth, uh, but also if we go back 70s, 80s, 90s, this is a time where depending on where you worked, you could be fired. Uh, certainly uh, in, in Canada, if you look at what happened to uh, civil servants, uh, members of the military, very similar in the United States. For these restaurants, is there any nod or sense of privacy and protecting people who need an outlet for a community and building that community, but at the same time, going to these sites could potentially harm them whether physically or in their career or family, whatever it is. Like, like how, how did these spaces walk that line? Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you framed it around privacy. And I can speak to your question in a couple ways. So for one, um, these spaces were really important for a lot of people to be able to live as out lesbians and also live out their feminist political values so that they could be out at work and they could dress how they wanted to and represent themselves in that way. So I think that's really key. And some of the founders of these spaces talked about that. For them, that was a dream that they could be out at work and make a space for others to be out at work. I'm also thinking of folks um, such as those at Wild Rose in Seattle who talked about really wanting it to be a bright and open space. So rather than in a basement and kind of like a dingy bar that was kind of hidden away, they want there to be big windows so that they could see the sunlight and they could invite their families to join them. And it could be a space you could go in the daytime, that there didn't need to be this feeling of hiding. Um, But at the same time, they talked about when people would just like throw open the door and yell something homophobic. The question of privacy, it's always when we're thinking about kind of queer spaces, lesbian spaces, trans spaces, 
and so forth, is that there's always this double-edged sword with visibility, right? I, a lot of folks who do queer studies, queer history speak to this as well, right? It, representation is important. It helps people feel included, but also visibility sometimes puts a target on your back. And so some of these spaces did deal with that dynamic. What was interesting was that with Bloodroot, um, Selma Miriam's mom said, you can't put feminist in the title of your restaurant, the name. You can't have it on the sign. You're going to get bricks through the window the first day. But they never got a brick. I think part of it is that it was slightly off the path. Like it's You can't really just wander and accidentally find this place. So in that way, it's both visible and invisible. But while some of the spaces did deal with levels of harassment, there wasn't overall that much like direct kind of violence and harassment in the way that some of the founders expected. Although um, one space, Grace and Ruby's in Iowa City, did deal with, um, because it was a club and had club status as part of like its tax status, so they could be women, a woman-only space, that then meant that like some people, like some men filed a did, like try to legally force them to allow men or to close. And ultimately they had to close. So there was harassment in that kind of legal sense. Um, but also your question relating to trans inclusion within legislation in Canada and the U.S. is also really important when thinking about these feminist spaces. I mentioned before how there are debates about who is a woman. Some of these spaces were trans inclusive and it was how women define themselves. So we're open to trans women. A lot of the spaces were open to people of all genders, uh, but like we're focused on women's issues or focused on feminist issues. The terms of kind of feminism definitions around gender change. So if I'm looking over a 50 year period, these debates change quite a bit. Um, but there were places that were directly transphobic and trans exclusive. And so it's also really important to acknowledge that violence within the spaces, right? They're not utopias. They also right. can be welcoming to some people and very violent for others. So that's an important part of this history. As we look at the feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses kind of founded in, so the last part of my book really looks at like what's happening today and basically after 1989, the spaces founded today tend to be really gender inclusive, trans inclusive, a huge emphasis on queer identity over just lesbian identity, though there's still inclusion of lesbian identity. And uh, so there's been kind of a shift in that framework, but trans inclusion is really emphasized now. Yeah. So I guess it's maybe I used the wrong word of, of privacy, maybe more protection, right? Like if you mm. want a safe space, you obviously want a safe space within where you are that people can come mm -hmm. hang out, build that community, be themselves, be authentically themselves. But when they leave, you don't want their participation there or them having been there to create harm on the outside, right? So is that something that a business and maybe it's unfair on a business owner to expect them to do that. Uh, but is that something that, again, if a woman who worked in the military uh, comes in and, and she's there as an out lesbian in a uh, in the cafe, and then like the commanding officer comes by, like like are those sorts of situations are they conscious of that type of thing? I mean, I think like we we have to think about exactly which time period in this fifty year sure. history. Yeah, of course. So this raises some like important questions about who knew what the space meant. It also is why a lot of them use the word woman in their like titles or in their framing or publicity, because woman is a word that, especially in the 70s and 80s for like wim the women's music movement, 
or a woman's coffee house. It mostly meant lesbian or what we would say like a queer woman, like a bisexual woman or a woman who was questioning. It allowed for this openness. So if you're questioning, it didn't scare you away. But also if you look at a book and it says women's music, you know, that someone who isn't part of the community won't know that's about lesbians. So that was like one way of kind of having that cover or there things would be like the kinds of newsletters or publications would oftentimes be distributed in like a brown, plain brown paper without a name, right? For people who weren't able to be out or didn't want to be out for a variety of different reasons. So there was awareness of that. Uh, I had mentioned before the one uh, coffee house that took place in the, the cookie shop. Well, a lot of the people who went to that coffee house were local lesbians who were teachers, and they couldn't be known as being lesbians or else they would lose their jobs. So by able to by being able to meet at the coffee house, it was small. They could have the lights turned off if they needed to, right? It gave them cover and protection. So these concerns were definitely very real. And they also, as historians, raise a bunch of questions too about the use of photographs. Are we inadvertently outing someone? When we digitize the materials about these spaces and they're on the internet now, are we inadvertently outing someone, right? It raises a lot of different uh ethical and moral questions uh, around our methodologies, around our use of archives, about archival practices as well. Um, Because there's real difference of someone taking a photo with their friends and they think it's just going to be in a photo album just for their friends. And then 20 years later, 40 years later, it shows up in an archive that now has digitized it. And then a historian has put it in a book, right? So that raises a bunch of other questions too. But the use of the word woman and the use of the word feminist also, again, kind of gives that cover, right? Like you could be someone that was there visiting friends or someone that's like interested in the political movement, but not necessarily identifying as a lesbian or or a queer woman. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you're doing things that are in living memory and there's real practical people, real human beings Mm -hmm. walking around uh, who could be affected by those sorts of questions. Whereas if you look at people who are studying, say, the 19th century, the person's not there, but then you can't also talk to the person. So yeah, exactly. You know, how many assumptions do you have to make? How much of the coded language can you understand? Or is Mm -hmm. it just that they were just they were friends with other people like you know what like there's the the unknown uh really does exist in the older stuff but then maybe some of those ethical questions are more prominent in the recent stuff Mm -hmm. yeah i think anytime too i mean this is an ongoing kind of challenge within uh queer history as well right is like what kind of terminology we're using uh judith bennett has that great piece called lesbian like when before the term lesbian existed, how would you define someone in the past? Well, you could say they were lesbian-like. Um, but even for the people that I write about who, you know, they were in their 20s in the 1970s, you know, the way that they've come to see themselves and their own activism and their contributions have changed over time. You know, some people right. have transitioned. Some people use different um, ways to categorize their own identities. Some people have changed their names, right? There's a lot of things that will shift over time. But also memory itself, as historians know, is always a challenging thing, right? I will have interviewed someone and then also read an interview they did with someone else and an interview they did with someone else. And the story is always a little bit different, part because of who's recording the interview, part the way the question was asked, and part how they see themselves at the time, you know? So 
it's always important to think about how my own role as the historian doing the oral histories is also shaping the interview, right? My identity as a queer woman allows me certain kinds of access to parts of their histories that someone else's identity might not, you know? So I think all these things are always challenges when we're dealing with living people. And I mentioned it earlier, the current reality of what's going on in the United States and Canada uh, as it relates to legislation and policies, it seems to be primarily focused on schools in terms of the legislation that's being passed, but it is filtering into other parts mm-hmm. of of life and, and society. So as I, I know it's always dangerous to ask historians to say, hey, what's going on now? But yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it anyway. Go for it. Uh, you know, how important are these spaces in this moment now where you turn on the news, you can see what's going on, that uh, certain things are under attack, and, and there's a certain segment of political life that wants to either rest- restrict these spaces, eliminate these types of spaces, and just make it so that uh, the communities that tend to congregate don't have these spaces anymore. Yeah, I actually love this question. So by looking at the history, the really historical part of the book, um, it's a way to see how one can try to create a feminist space in a capitalist society. The kinds of challenges that you'll face, what you have to navigate, a lot of those lessons are still super relevant today to have a socially just-minded business and what that means. They also are really important in showing us how vital physical space is for community building and congregating. That's not to discourage virtual community building. That's also an important component. And I also talk about that in the book, about how virtual spaces are also useful. But what it means to come together over something like food or poetry or an event or music, right? Like how those things can bring us joy and foster community that allow us to do activism, that allow us to be resilient and have resistance, build family, create friendships, And these, you know, this legislation, yeah, it's focused right now on children in schools. And that's a tactic that also happened in the 1970s and 80s. So in the book, I talk about the Save the Children campaign in Florida and how one of the feminist restaurants stopped serving orange juice because the Anita Bryant campaign around Save the Children in Florida, right? This is an ongoing strategy of first focusing on children and focusing on books, and then it expands outward, right? So you pick one aspect to focus on, and then you call um, people perverted, and then you build from there, and you build from there, right? And then there's going to be trying to repeal other kinds of human rights as well. So uh, the strategy, we can see it in the 70s and 80s, we can see it repeating today, but we can also think about what people during those time periods did to resist, and part of that was building these kinds of spaces. And uh, certainly we've only really scratched the surface, but a a lot of modern relevance to what is in the book. So again, it's Ingredients for Revolution, A History of American Feminist Restaurants, Cafes, and Coffee Houses. Alex, if people want to pick up a copy of the book or keep up with all the other things you got going on, because I know you got a lot uh, going on, uh, what's the best way for them to to keep up with everything you're doing? For sure. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter at aketchum22, as long as Twitter still exists. You can follow the project and the publications related to it at thefeministrestaurantproject.com. You know how to Google the name of the book, so you can find it through booksellers, uh, support your local indie bookstores if that's possible for you. 
And uh, I make open access versions of pretty much all of my work. So you can find that on my website, alexketchum.ca. And we will link to all that in the show notes below. So be sure to check all of it out. So Alex, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. So there you have it. My chat with Alex Ketchum. Again, the book is Ingredients for Revolution, A History of American Feminist Restaurants, Cafes, and Coffee Houses. And I, of course, thank Alex for her time. And with that, we'll get right to today's historical headline of the week which comes from the Washington Post back January 31st, 2019 by Tim Carmen, entitled Annie's Paramount Steakhouse. Long a haven for DC's gay community wins a James Beard Classics Award. And in this article, Tim Carmen discusses the James Beard Award going to Annie's Paramount Steakhouse, which is in DuPont Circle in DC, which is well known for its sizable portions, very generous portions when you go in and order, but also well known for embracing the local LGBTQ2 plus community. And this is a restaurant that dates back to the 1950s before the Stonewall riots and what many conceive of the modern gay rights movement. This restaurant founded in 1948 became a gathering place similar to what Alex was talking about on the show for LGBTQ2 plus folks to get together, to build community, to have safe space. And and it was one of the few places within Washington, D.C. where that was possible. A family-owned restaurant. It did win as a a family-owned restaurant. The recognition in 2019 is given out to, quote, beloved regional restaurants that are distinguished by their timeless appeal and their quality food that reflects the character of their communities. So it was awarded this, one of five in the United States back in 2019. And the article gets into a bit of the origins of how the restaurant became known for its embrace of same-sex couples. One of those stories came from the obituary of Annie Kaler, who was one of the founders of the restaurant who passed back in 2013. And in the story, she noticed that there were two men holding hands under a table at the restaurant. And she went up to the table and told them that they should feel free to hold hands above the table. And with that, Annie and the restaurant became known uh, throughout the community as a safe haven for LGBTQ plus couples. And at that time in the 1950s, it was harder to find those spaces than perhaps it is today. But you see the significance of them and how they can be very important for building community and creating spaces that are not exclusive to LGBTQ2 plus folks, but are very important to the community. And hey, if you get a great meal at the same time, as the James Beard Award recognizes, even better. So today's historical headline of the week, Annie's Paramount Steakhouse, long a haven for DC's gay community, wins a James Beard Classics Award from January 31st, 2019. And with that, Say thank you very much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, likes, rates, comments, 
all that good stuff helps other people find the show, keeps us growing. Of course, head on over to activehistory.ca. Lots of great material over there the past couple months. It's the summer, but still a lot of great written material over there on the site. All past episodes, plus all those old History Slam episodes are there under the podcast tab. Of course, you can let me know what you want to hear on the show. It's oldestnews at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a wonderful Canada Day. Have a wonderful 4th of July. If you are celebrating, do celebrate safely and responsibly. And I would also encourage you to take those opportunities to reflect broadly on the two countries' histories. Because I'm looking forward to seeing you here again next week for more What's Old is News.